Sometimes you get yourself into a precarious situation. There's no way to go other than forward, but as you look back, you realize that better decisions could have been made. For instance, if you're a 40-something-year-old man and you're asked to race against a track star live and in front of 45,000 people, at some point you come to regret that decision. And you realize that there was probably a better decision to be made if you were here at our first service. You heard all about that. Well, we've gotten ourselves into a bit of a precarious situation here. You see, we've been preaching on Luke for two and a half to three years. I know I always make a joke about how long we've been preaching in Luke, but we have seriously been in Luke two and a half to three years. And yet, at the start of the new year, in other words, just next Sunday, we're beginning a brand new series. Our new senior minister, Dr. Neil Stewart, is going to be preaching John in the morning and the Psalms in the evening. Now, if you've heard Dr. Stewart preach one time, you know one thing. You want more of Dr. Stewart's preaching. So we are all looking forward to him preaching both morning and evening here. However, we didn't really find that out in time to adjust our Luke series. So... Brian's last sermon, which was at the end of November, where we have Jesus before an angry council, was our last sermon in Luke. There was, there was no propitiation, there's no cross, there's no resurrection, there's no hope, there's no sending out of the church for a mission. There's just Jesus arrested. That cannot stand. We, we have to conclude this Luke series, and we have to make it through that which is at the heart of the gospel. We, we have to talk about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and his command for the church to go forward. But how do you do that? How do you preach over all of that material and not make it this 30,000-foot overview well, I'm going, to, I'm going to take a play from the playbook of one Ligon Duncan here. Now, what you and I may all conclude by the time we get to the end of this evening is that this is a play that only Ligon Duncan should run. <laughs> but we're going to try it. Once when we were in Jackson and Ligon was our senior minister, he was preaching through the Psalms, and he got to Psalm 119. And of course, you may know Psalm 119 is the largest psalm in the Psalter. It's the largest chapter of Scripture in your Bible, and people break it up in a number of ways, and it usually takes in and of itself five sermons or six sermons just to make it through. And Ligon decided he was just going to read Psalm 119. Just read it with some comments here or there, and that that was the sermon. It was brilliant. Of course, it was Ligon, and he could read the phone book, and it would be brilliant. <laughs> but it was amazing. And I asked him afterwards. I wasn't even on staff at the time, I don't think. I just asked him, why did you do that? That was amazing. How did you come to that conclusion? And he gave me all the wheres and whys that he did that. But then he said this at the end, and it's always stuck with me. He said, Josh, if I ever am tempted to think that what my people need is more of my words and less of Jesus's words. 
we're in real trouble. And so what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to read from the end of chapter 22, all of chapter 23, and all of chapter 24 tonight. We're going to make it through to the end of Luke together. I'll stop on occasion here and there making some comments and then get right back to the reading. And then we'll celebrate it all with the Lord's Supper. Before we go and turn to Luke, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon this reading. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we come to this long text and yet necessary, incredible, that which is at the very heart of the gospel that we proclaim as Christians, namely the crucifixion and the resurrection. Lord, as we read through this, would you be with us? Would it be doing its work on our hearts? And if there are any who are listening to this, either live right now, here, online, or later, who don't know you, who know maybe about you, but don't know you, are not known by you in that relational way that makes you Lord and Savior and elder brother, would you radically work in their hearts so that as they hear this word, they would see you there crucified for them and risen as a promise to them forever. Would you do this and get all the glory and honor? We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Luke 22, starting in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Let's pause for just a second. This is something that happens throughout all of history 
where people come to Jesus, they come to God, and what they want is a sign. They, they want to see something that shows them the miraculous. God, if only you would do X, then, then I would believe as if, as if faith, you just, you just screw it up and have the gumption to believe. Well, let me tell you, the generations that saw the most signs did not seem to have the most faith. In fact, it seems to be quite the opposite. The generation of Exodus that saw some of the greatest signs in all of believing history, that day by day were fed by God in a miraculous way that saw pillars of smoke and fire that were delivered through a sea that was stopped. They were stubborn and unfaithful and they died in the wilderness. And some even now, and someone maybe even here today is here because they're looking for a sign. They want to they feel some certain way. They want to see some certain thing. And then, then God, will I believe. Well, let me tell you, we are about to read about the most miraculous sign in all of history. And you're about to see it lived out sensibly by the touch with the Lord's Supper. If that's not miraculous enough, what you need is not a sign. What you need is faith. And what you need to do is you need to ask the faith giver, God himself, for that faith. Herod just plays with Jesus here. He's just interested in being entertained. Don't play with Jesus. Don't be like Herod. Herod's end is destruction. Okay, let's, let's pick back up. Starting verse 9 of 23. So he questioned him, that is, Herod questioned Jesus, at some length. But he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Let's pause one more time here. Luke is giving you some threes. We, we've already seen one of them with Peter. 
Peter's thrice denial of Jesus. We're going to see a different one here in just a, a few minutes. And then you've got this one from Pilate, where three separate times Pilate has said, this man is innocent. There, there's nothing in him that deserves death. This is a, a key doctrine for you and I and flies in the face of what the Jewish leaders would have been saying at the time. And Luke is doing his job as a good historian, saying, look, you, you can go and check the record for yourself. Herod found Christ innocent. What, what irony that, that the triple witness from one of Jesus' own disciples who had walked with him for years and seen the miraculous and heard the voice of God, he would deny Jesus. And this pagan leader, governor, would have this insightful, he is an innocent man. Sometimes even the pagans can see more clearly than Christ's own disciples. Let's pick back up. Verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries, that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, notice how even on his way to the cross, Jesus is more concerned about the people he loves than himself. These women, he wants to Give them a moment of comfort and insight. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. We need to let the text just sit for a minute. That our Lord and Savior, that he who is very God of very God, who chose to be incarnate, not as, a, not as a king coming down and conquering, but as a servant, born into poverty and choosing to take his time with the sick and the weak, like he was, he was compelled to them. And he's being killed with criminals on his side. There's the shame, there's the pain, 
And there's the isolation of this. We don't have time to dive deep into each of those, but let me touch on all three of them for a second. As we heard in Hebrews 12 this morning, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Being crucified with criminals in the most publicly shaming way for a man who is God. All things live and have their being in, through, and by him. For the one that never sinned, never deserved any of it. And he's going to be killed like the worst of the criminals. This is the worst way that they had to punish criminals. The shame, the pain. It was actually developed by the Assyrians who loved ways of killing people that are painful. It's one of the ways they kept everybody in line for their reign. And they came up with crucifixion. It was so painful that they had to invent a new word to describe it. Excrucio, from the cross. The next time that you say that you have a pain that is excruciating, you're saying that you have a pain that feels something like crucifixion. That's how terrible this was. And then the isolation. That there is for the very first time and only time in all of history a rent in the fellowship, in the Godhead. That when Christ calls out in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a relationship and a fellowship that was perfect, a love that was absolutely perfect. If you take the one you love the most, the one you feel loved by the most, it is only just a hint of the sort of love that exists between father and son. And for the first and only time, he withdraws and pours out wrath. It is terrible. That is hell. The pain, the physical death is bad enough, but the spiritual death of hell poured out upon him, and it's only for one reason. It's for you. If you're his, if you love him and he loves you, the only reason he's enduring all of this is that he loves you. He wants you as his. Let's keep going. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. I, I, just, I, can't, even, I can't even imagine that. So overwhelmed with pain and hurt isolation and hell being poured out upon you and what are you saying in that moment not curse them father because of what they're doing to me because they're killing me even though i'm innocent instead forgive them and don't don't mistake it for a second if you were there if you had been there at this point in time, you wouldn't be the one saying save him. You'd be the one shouting crucify. That's who you and I are as sinners. And even in his moment 
of highest misery and suffering, he's interceding for you. That's who Jesus is. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two things super quick. One, did you notice the next three? The three thrice witness and accusation, save yourself. Save yourself, the ruler said it. Save yourself, the soldier said it. Save yourself, the criminal said it. As if saving himself were the sign of his Messiah rather than dying to save the world. He was doing exactly what he was sent to do. He was saving others and saved others by not saving himself. Secondly, that this criminal, he did nothing. There there was no something he did to earn his way into heaven. All he did was have faith that Jesus was who he said he was in that moment. And Jesus promises him, you'll be with me today in paradise. It's one of the most encouraging moments in all of Scripture and one of the clearest indicators of grace and the salvific nature of grace. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That, that sentence, that last sentence of chapter 23 may be one of the most pregnant sentences in all of scripture. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Can you imagine being one of these women or one of Christ's disciples on that Sabbath? 
what does this mean? He's dead. He can't, he can't be dead. I, I saw him with Elijah and Moses. I saw miracles done by him. What, what could it mean that he's dead? I, I walked away from so much. I gave up family and trade. I listened to him. I, I supported him. What does this mean? What does it mean that he's dead? That must have been a terrible and confusing Sabbath. But praise the Lord for the following day. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Pause for just a second. They just told Jesus that they had thought that Jesus was the Christ, but he obviously wasn't. Praise the Lord that he is so kind and gracious for slow-witted and stubborn disciples. Because I are one. There are so many times when I just got to hear the same things again and again in Scripture into this stubborn and slow heart of mine so that I can more and more love him and know him as he is. (laughs) Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This must have been the most amazing Bible study in the history of Bible studies. If there's any way when we get to glory to go back and see little capsules of time, like maybe there's some way that they can do like a a museum of the greatest moments and you actually get to see it, I hope they do this. I hope I get to just sit for a couple of hours and hear this greatest Bible study. He shows that the Old Testament is full of threads that point to this New Testament reality about who Jesus was. And that this plan for Jesus, the salvation of all his people, was the plan from all time, from the beginning. If you ever have somebody who tells you, this is just an interlude, this church era. This is, this is just a backup plan until Israel kind of gets back on board and that's the real plan. They would flunk Jesus' Bible study. Because Jesus says, Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures point to him. Everything was pointing to what Christ had to do. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And we had said this. He showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. By the way, that's our marching orders. That's what you and I are to do, is to go proclaim the forgiveness of sins because what of Christ has done for us to all nations. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Praise be to God for his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write all its truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, a long section such a poignant section and we could take any one of these verses really and spend an hour dissecting them let alone to go across nearly 120 verses in such a short amount of time and yet that central truth that you came to die for the forgiveness of sins that is the central truth of our faith lord Help us that it might be more true to us than anything, that we might live it out in a way that is demonstrable to a watching world, and that people would come to know you and bless you and love you and know that truth in their lives and know your love in their lives. Do it and get all the glory and honor for it. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.